When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the Love Tennis Podcast with me, James Gray, and George Belshaw of Metro.co.uk. Yes, we're back after an extended break that involved me going on holiday to the west of Scotland. I can recommend it, but not if it rains. And it rains all the time. Uh, We are back. Love Tennis Podcast is back indeed. It's me, it's George, and it's Federer and Nadal. I'm so excited to talk about Federer versus Nadal in the well. George, I didn't get the chance to watch it, though. What what was it like? Yeah, it was a a good one. The 39th meeting, walkover. I I mean, it is obviously, it's massively disappointing. I think some people are saying if only Rafa had pulled out you know, during the quarterfinal, because then at least we'd have got a decent semi. Yeah, I, I, I got a bit of stick for floating that idea. I mean, I wasn't saying, oh, Rafa definitely should have pulled out, but it does always make you feel when you get to a match of that kind of magnitude, you know, a semi-final, the, you have to bear in mind the guys who are buying tickets for this, it's so much more expensive at that end. And particularly in this instance, you know, when people are expecting a Federer-Nadal final, uh, semi-final rather, you know, tickets online are suddenly going to spike you know people will be very out of pocket for it so it's just always very disappointing and I think with Rafa this isn't the first time this has happened he's seen you know his warrior um kind of attitude is what makes him so brilliant but it is also kind of killing him on hard courts and we almost know he's going to pull out I think what happens is that a, a, a normal human in Rafael Nadal's situation halfway through the quarterfinal would go this is done, that I just can't, you know, even if I get through this set, I'm not going to be able to play the semi-final, so I might as well start throwing the town now. But because Rafa is so superhuman and such a warrior, he finds a way to drag himself through it. And then he gets the, you know, the adrenaline flows out of his system. He wakes up the next morning and the doctor goes, your, your leg is going to fall off. <laughs> and he has to pull out. So I have some sympathy for him. Yeah, and I think, you know, the, the, the big question about this is if Hachinov had dragged another set out of Rafa, would we have been in the same situation as well? You know, mm. Nadal's got through that in two very tight, very close sets. But if Hachinov takes the first set, for example, and then gets a break up in the second, does Rafa, you know, have the Does he feel he can get through three sets there? I, I'm not so sure. I think, 
you know, this happened at the US Open as well when he kind of fought through Dominic team in that brilliant five setter and you could tell he was a broken man. Mm. Comes back against Del Potro and he's just utterly, utterly broken. But at least he got out then. Do you think there's a case to be made that Rafa needs to do a little bit like I know Roger's back on clay now, but he obviously binned off the clay court season for a while. Do you think there's something to be said for Rafa who I think only played one clay court tournament in twenty eighteen in Canada? Uh, sorry, court. one hardcore tournament. <laughs> I was going to say, bloody hell, I missed yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> they won hardcore tournament in 2018. Do you think there's something to be said for him just saying, you know what, hard, certain parts of the hardcore season, whether it's, you know, after the Australian Open, don't play again, wait until clay. Does he need to adjust his schedule? Or is this actually a terminal injury? I, I just think, you know, and, and he's been quite honest about this, I think the big problem Rafa's got is just how much of the season is played on a hardcore. Yeah. And, you know, it's not the same as skipping clay for Federer. It's, or Rafa's sometimes kind of shortened his grass court season, for example. Well, um, the grass court season's only about 10 minutes long, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, but, you know, he's he's willing to just turn up and play Wimbledon mm. on that. You know, you can't you can't really do that on a hard court because there's so many different events, so many points to be had. Uh, okay, you know, you can make a pretty good argument that Rafa would be a top five player based on just his clay results in the last two years. Um, but as we'll touch on later, you know, this year's clay court season, it's not going to be as much of a, a walkover for Rafa as it perhaps has been in the last two years, you know, with Novak coming back with team looking very strong. Even Roger might be a contender in Madrid, for example. So, you know, I, he has to play on hard courts. And I think to to be fair to Rafa, a lot of people have said his complaints about the tour being on a hard court for so long are very personally motivated. But I, I do genuinely think he's concerned about the welfare of a lot of other players and he's he's spoken about how he wants in 15 20 years the hardcore um schedule reduced because it is it does take its toll and there are a lot of joint injuries among these players this isn't just rafa um but it, it's particularly tough for him i just don't really know what he can do with the schedule maybe just australian open for me that was uh, the obvious thing to US. do is either is either pile off everything after the u.s and, you know, may, maybe go to ATP World Tour Finals if you feel you have to, but obviously we know that Rafa very rarely makes it that far anyway. You have to build in a break here somehow. We know what it does for him. You know, you saw when he had that wrist injury in, what, back in 2016 when Federer had even longer off then. For both of them, the next year they were, they were pretty fit for quite a long time. Yeah, and I think the, the really interesting thing about uh, last year compared to this year is if you look at where Rafa got injured on the hard court last year at the start of the year and he pulled out the Australian Open quarterfinals that gave him a good three month block to be ready for the clay now this year it's happened in Indian Wells and suddenly it's three weeks till Monte Carlo now is that going to have an impact is he actually going to be fit enough for the clay for the start of the clay I'm sure he will be but you know that extra break you're talking about could almost impact his clay season so I think you know, there are serious things he needs to look at about where he wants to play, where he can't play. Um, I, I would suggest his schedule was pretty much right this year if he wasn't going to play Miami anyway. I think that, you know, it's a long gap to go from Australia straight into the clay if you're not injured. I think turning out to play Indian Wells is, is fair enough. Um, but you might be right after the after the uh, US Open. That seems like a good opportunity to maybe duck out of a few but the problem and i think maybe you know in 15 years time when rafa writes the book about his career or when someone ghosts the book for him about his career i wonder if he might look back and think i wish i'd been more proactive about looking after my career because we saw when was it that he lost all that weight he lost about two and a half stone in muscle because the doctor said to him look 
you are this size and you're fine for the moment, but it's going to take a toll. And he was pretty much pushed to a decision point eventually because he ignored them for a while. And eventually they said, look, this is this is do or die. And so he dropped loads of weight and it prolonged his career. But if this is then going to take it out of him, and he's going to look back and say, well, actually, maybe trying to play 18 hardcore tournaments in a year was unrealistic. And now I've retired at the age of 34 and Roger went on until he was 49. And maybe that's what, what he'll regret is not making those decisions before he has to. And Andy Murray's had a similar thing in that he has only taken that decision with various operations and various breaks when he's absolutely had to. He's never done it sort of prophylactically. Yeah, and I remember a big conversation at the Australian Open was about how Rafa had adapted his hardcore game. You know, he changed his serve, that was quicker. Um, You know, he was shortening points. Most of that tournament, he was finishing points within three shots, which isn't that common for Rafa traditionally you know he's a grinder he wants to kind of break people down um so that you know there were signs he's starting to change his hard court game uh, as it turned out he came up against Novak Djokovic and it, that game wasn't anywhere near close enough to no. take on Novak um and whether that remains the case later in the year but you know looking at the hard court slams the US opens the one that he's traditionally best at because that's a slower hard court than Australia you know he's He's still not necessarily getting the best results on all the hard courts. Like I think Indian Wells and Miami are quite quick, so they're, they're not necessarily suited to him. He's done very well in Toronto, for example, where mm. that's a little bit um, slower. And the US Open is obviously very slow uh, in the last couple of years. Um, but, you know, does that necessarily suit his style to be playing, slogging out on the slow hard courts, even though it suits him best? I don't know. I think it's a, it's a really difficult situation for him. I think it's interesting to hear Roger Federer. Of it. I mean, he always says he's disappointed, but I'm sure he was quite glad to have a couple of days off. Interesting to hear him say, was this our last chance? I hope not. Now, I feel like Federer, two years ago, wouldn't have said it like that. He would have said, you know, it won't be our last chance. I know we'll meet again at some point. And that, to me, sounds like Roger. And, you know, Roger and Rafa know each other pretty much as well as anyone. That to me sounds like he's starting to consider that Rafa might be coming towards the end as well. I don't. I, how many years? If you had to, if you had to guess now, how many years until Rafa posts a statement on Twitter and says that's it for me? I think I think Rafa will just be really sudden. I, th- I feel like Roger, we sort of know will be done in the next two years. Mm. Rafa is someone to me who he could, could might, be he going, could might drop tomorrow. Yeah, he could go tomorrow. He could go in four years. Mm. I, you know, I think. These guys are always going on about how they're not motivated by records, but I, I just don't believe that on that Grand Slam one. You know, Djokovic has started to say, yes, that's what I want. I do believe Rafa's got a similar motivation. Um, and I think he can catch Federer. I think, you know, he's tantalisingly close to catching Federer if results go well. You know, if he wins the uh, French Open, that he's within two Grand Slam titles for Federer. I mean, he's hardly going to call it a day mm. right then unless his body's really like, you're done, mate. Um, well, unless his leg actually falls actually, off. <laughs> which that, I keep saying, and I sort of think it might happen now, and I'm <laughs> going to take some responsibility for that. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think he's just... You know, he's getting married now as well. He's always kind of said that he would never start a family while touring and stuff. You know, is that a sign he's... I, I think that is real, a sign no, he's real, really close real to life, the end. Real life, man, catches up with you. Because yeah. there's a certain point uh, at which you, you get perspective and it, it could be anything you know it could be 
doing your knee when you're giving your daughters a bath or it could be <laughs> you know missing out on a birthday or i think with every athlete when they get into their 30s something happens and they go oh, i don't i don't think i want to miss stuff like that i don't want to jeopardize things like that and we see you know i work with a lot of footballers retired footballers and retired tennis players for that matter and you know there's a certain era where they can't play football in the garden with their kids because the knee just won't let them or their old hip won't let them and i think that is the kind of thing which you don't realize when you're 31 or you're 32 and when you're 50 and you can't run around the garden with your nine-year-old that really really hurts and i think some of these guys get a reality check at some point in their early 30s and they go hang on there's something slightly bigger than this that could come at any point and i think you're right with someone like rafa he's not going to have a slow downhill is he it's going to be rafa and then no rafa again now we were of course massively disappointed not to have that Federer in Nadal semi but it did mean we had a Federer team final in Indian Wells Roger Federer going for a record sixth title there and he was beaten he had he went a set up and Dominic team produced I mean a brilliant performance wasn't it yeah it was fantastic um I was really really impressed with Dominic team I think you know coming into this tournament he'd been in pretty miserable form I think he'd won three matches and lost four which mm. you know getting into March is a pretty horrendous <laughs> record especially when you consider he'd, he'd gone off to Rio to play on clay mm. I mean that's it's the wrong mental. end of the season for team as well isn't it because usually he's rubbish at the end of the season because <laughs> Gunter's just Dead, flogged yeah. him to death <laughs> but now starting badly and then yeah I think he said it himself it just felt unreal what happened I came in really bad form in all categories and now I'm the champion of Indian Wells I mean look tennis was for a period and in a good way, predictable in the men's game. You had the big four or the big three or whoever happened to be fit at that current moment. And you sort of knew they were all going to be there or thereabouts. 2019 has been anything but. Mm. I know you were mentioning how many how many champions do you say has been in the men's so, tour? in 19 events, we've had 19 different champions. I mean, that's insane. It's that's crazy. absolutely insane. Uh, Dominic Team's first Masters 1000 title as yeah. well. Bit of a break. And not from... on clay. Yeah, because he, <laughs> what was it? He got to the final of Madrid two Twice. years running, yeah. lost Nadal, lost to Zverev, and now has beaten Federer. Do you think it will make a difference? I, I sometimes feel like we talk a lot about coming of age moments because as journalists, we're desperate for a narrative that has a, you know, a point at which we can say, ah, yes, but I remember when he beat Federer mm-hmm. in Indian Wells, and after that, everything sort of followed. Do you think this is that? Well, you know, funnily enough, I thought the moment for me, for him on his hardcore career was against Nadal at the US Open last year. That was that was the best performance I've ever seen from Dominic Team on a hardcore against one of the best players. He was um, he was fearless. He was hitting brilliantly. You know, he blew Rafa away in that first set and you know, bageled him in about mm. 20 minutes. That was one of the best sets I've ever seen. I think that was, you know, Rafa did get through by hook and crook and it was... You know, Rafa needed to dig in as far as he possibly could. But team didn't go away. Team didn't lose that match mentally. It was right to the wire. And I felt that was, you know, even though he lost that match, that was a big breakthrough moment on him in a hard court where he could be like, all right, I actually can beat these top guys. And then it got to this Indian Wells final. He's been pretty miserable since then. And you're kind of thinking, you're watching him lose the first set, making some kind of elementary tactical mistakes and missing a lot. You're thinking, oh, he's going to just lose this three and three. It's easy for Federer. Mm. Um, and just mentally, there was a big switch from team. There was one slightly loose um, service game from Federer earlier in the second set that seemed to kind of give him a bit of impetus. It's this chink in the armour that I've been talking about with Federer. 
There's definitely, look, he, it was kind of classic Federer, start fast, first set, 35 minutes, bish, bash, bosh. It all felt routine. You're absolutely right. And maybe in the old days, Federer would have then got an early break in the second, and, yeah. and that's it. Like, no one, you know, psychologically, only Kevin Anderson can come back from that. <laughs> because, obviously, he's, he's a legend. <laughs> the, the, the Kevin Anderson boner on this show is getting quite bad, isn't it? <laughs> clearly far too obsessed with the man. But Federer showed a chink in the armour, and I think that's what's becoming part of Federer's game as he gets a bit older you just can't be that consistent and those mistakes come I mean I think he had more than 30 unforced errors in the match mm. which is extremely unfederal like at even the best of times but to talk come back to team the breakthrough moment an interesting stat it's only his fifth win against a top 10 player on hard court now I think he's got something like 16 in his career total but obviously has got a lot of them on clay do you think he has the game that's cut out to compete with the likes of the new generation. Just just, just forget Federer and Nal Djokovic for a moment and look at the calibre of player and particularly the size of player that's coming through at the moment. Do you think he has the power to compete with them? Yeah, I, I mean, off the ground, he's one of the most powerful hitters. His, and his serve, I think, has improved dramatically. I thought he served pretty well against Federer. So excellently. Um, sort of yeah. Um, 70% on first serve, I yeah. think, which is great. That's good. That's, that's what you need yeah. in that sort of match. Mm. Um, you know, I think on a clay court, we'll see Dominic Team win a couple of Grand Slams. I do think. Really? Uh, I think he'll win a couple of French Opens. I think he's I suppose he's if you look good. after Rafa, of this group, like who who are the good clay court players? Yeah, Zverev. Zverev is a good clay court player. Um, but I, Auger Aliassime has been working quite hard on that sort of thing. Shapovalov has showed some form last year on clay. Sissy Pass is actually a good clay player as well. I mean, they're all okay, but they're not Rafa. No. And I think Team is the only one really pushing Rafa on the right surfaces. Um, so I, I think he'll do well there. I, weirdly enough, I could see his first Grand Slam coming at the US Open because, that, again, that's a slower hardcore. I think with Dominic Team, you, what you've got to remember is you know, he's never going to be the best grass court player because he takes so long to wind up to his shot. It's, it's unreal power, but it, it takes a lot to get there. And he just <laughs> needs a little bit more of a moment to fix that. So I don't see him ever shining on this surface. I don't think he'll ever be huge in the in the UK because he's never going to show it at Wimbledon. Mm. But I think he can be a French and possibly a US Open champion. I do think he's that good. It's weird, of course, that all of, you know, you're looking for slow hard courts or fast clay courts with Dominic Team because, of course, he, he's been to the final in Madrid twice, one of the quickest surfaces around and to altitude as well, they say, and obviously slow hard courts. So maybe he needs to invent his own Grand Slam, <laughs> basically, with like some really, really far, in Madrid, preferably, or maybe in like Bolivia. That's what he should do, right? He the should La Paz Grand Slam. Yes, exactly. The La Paz Open. Uh, make it a, a, a Grand Slam, and then we can get Dominic Team loads of tournament wins. <laughs> Now, in our complicated and very, very meticulous planning process, George, and you must understand, Love Tennis Podcast listeners, that George and I spend literally minutes planning every podcast. <laughs> uh, Seconds, I'd say. <laughs> a 20-second text, normally. You, uh, you said, Andrescu's a diva. Bianca Andrescu, of course, a wildcard winner at Indian Wells. She beat Angelique Kerber in the final what do you mean when you say she's a diva? Choose your words carefully. Yeah, I, I didn't choose my words overly carefully on this occasion. I, I didn't mean Those diva. private WhatsApp messages you send me, George, they go straight onto the forums. <laughs> I didn't mean diva as in she's got an attitude. I just mean she's brilliant. I mean, a superstar. I think she's absolutely fantastic. Um, I think we have spoken about her a little bit on the show before, mm. um, particularly after that run in Auckland where she beat Caroline Wozniacki and Venus Williams. 
Um, I'll be forever indebted to Andrescu actually for making my debut on Canadian television after that. Um, so, you know, I, I was quite aware of her in that run there. I'll be honest, before that, I didn't know too much about her. She has kind of come out of the blue. She was uh, outside the top 150, but she is someone that I um, have been watching out for ever since then. And boy, was she brilliant this week. Um, I think the win over Garbine Muguruza will remain when, when kind of looking back at her career, that will re- be looked at as one of the biggest statement wins you'll ever see. You know, it's one thing for 18-year-olds to beat Venus, to beat Caroline Wozniacki. But to beat someone of that kind of calibre in 52 minutes, love and one, you know, that just shows you when this girl's on it, she's unstoppable. But what what is amazing after that is, you know, you can't always be that hot you have to follow it up. And mm. she's beaten Svitolina in an incredibly tight match. And then she's beaten Kerber in an incredibly tight match. And Kerber, you know, what Kerber did really well in that match, because Kerber did play well yeah. as well. Like Andrescu kind of battered Kerber early on. And Kerber just, she dug in and made it oh, so, so difficult. That's funny. She yeah. never does that. <laughs> but, you know, she kind she of became up. this brick wall yeah. and really tested Andrescu. And Andrescu was kind of struggling physically, struggling mentally, still kind of sticking with it. And then just suddenly there was this burst uh, I think she was 3-2 and a breakdown in the decider and just suddenly after a quick chat where she kind of got all her frustrations out she just came out and was absolutely stunningly brilliant again I you know I think she's got everything about her she's got huge power what I think is also amazing is she's five foot seven, but she's got a huge serve and she looks to me when you see her she looks far bigger than that you know how Serena you kind of think is six foot eleven sometimes mm. because she's just got this this aura. Andreski's the same. She's smaller than Serena, but she dominates the Gets court. Gets on top of the ball, yeah. Exactly. She looks bigger than she is. And, you know, while there's all this power, and she can be a bit wild on occasion, you know, she'll she'll to- uh, kind of tighten things up. She's got this amazing touch, beautiful drop shot, almost kind of Radranska-esque. And the tennis IQ's far superior to anyone else. She's just such a smart player. I mean, that's not a surprise, right? I know she's 18, but she turned pro at 14. So she, in some ways, she's not a veteran, but she's a bit more experienced than a, a girl born in the year 2000, which she was, which makes me feel staggeringly old. <laughs> she's got a bit more experience in Naus than that. She's also been through injury. She had, I think, two stress fractures in her foot in the 2016 season. She had back problems last year. So I always think, and we sometimes talk about it when we're doing stuff for the station, oh, oh do you reckon this person will be a good guest? And I have a look at them sometimes and go, oh, yeah had two big injuries and it's because when sports people have big injuries they're forced to consider their life and consider their career and forced to become quite emotionally strong and emotionally cogent and I think when you've got someone who goes through that in their teenage years like Andrescu did I think that gives you a huge amount of emotional intelligence and tennis is one of those sports where you need that you need to be able to even though even though in the women's game obviously you have coaching you still need to be able to, at love 30 down at 2-3, get, say to yourself, right, come on, don't panic. Do this, do that. This is our game plan. This is the best thing to do here and here. No coach can tell you every single game situation. It, as you say, her tennis IQ is so high, and I think it's partly because the path she's had through to her first, um, what are they called now? Premier Mandatory Challenger, it, whatever they're called, yeah. um, wins. And, you know, the other thing on that kind of mental issue is she's... Um very big into her yoga and kind of big uh, mental kind of spiritual breathing and stuff. And I, I do, you know, I know some people kind of call it a bit whack job. You know, some of the older guard kind of pundits who look at these things and are like, oh, what's this weird kind of 
spiritual yoga Hippie thing they're doing. Yeah. But, you know, it's worked pretty well for Novak Djokovic. And, you know, I think a lot of lot more sportsmen or sports people as a whole are going in this sort of direction mm. because, you know, yoga is not only just good for flexibility, as Novak can kind of testify, but it also does just kind of zen you in on the big moments. You know, you what you're doing with it is you're kind of learning how to breathe in many ways. Yeah. And I think that's so important on those big moments where you're understandably nervous. And that's what Andrescu does so well. You know, she was falling apart. Her, phys- her body was done. And you just kind of can imagine she was just almost metaphorically closing her eyes, settling Finding her body down, you know, yeah. and that's what you do. I think that's that's something that will stand her in good stead. Look, anyone who's ever bombed a job interview or struggled under pressure knows that when that happens and your face goes red and your heart is bursting out of your chest, you can't do anything right. And you have to be able to control that. And when you can get your heart rate at a controlled level, then you can do things more actively. And actually, from a physiological point of view, if you can control your heart rate, you can then use that to create more power, to get more oxygen to your muscles, to, to be more powerful, to have more stamina. So, yeah, I, I mean, I'm right there with her. She, apparently, she was sniffing a jar throughout the she had something in a jar that she kept sniffing uh throughout the game uh, in her second round and she wouldn't tell anyone what was in it well i mean she probably won't tell anyone what's in it my guess would be having done a bit of yoga would be that uh that's the scent she kind of uses at the end of her practice right uh, so sometimes people come around or they they practice in a with a certain scent in the room right and that might kind of help create but... an association in the brain I exactly see. to get the breathing. So that would be my guess, whatever it is. I mean, I'm I'm not 100 percent sure, but that sounds like a good theory to me. Well, there you go, yoga and tennis here on the Love Tennis there Podcast. Now, much as we were robbed of a Federer Nadal semi final at Indian Wells, we were also robbed of Novak Djokovic going deep, which I think we'd all expected. George, you fully expected him to win every tennis match going on the men's <laughs> and women's tour in 2019. Uh, and then he got dumped out by Philip Kohlschreiber in straight sets. What on earth happened there? Oh, well, Kohlschreiber played some pretty good stuff. I mean, he took out Nick Kyrgios the round before, and I remember people being like, oh, Kyrgios just not turning up again, getting it wrong. And then for Kohlschreiber, it goes straight through Djokovic as well, sort of vindicated Nick. Um, what didn't vindicate Novak so much was that he eventually went out uh, in <laughs> like love and two to Gael Monfils. <laughs> um, so, you know, it wasn't... It was a great tournament for Kohlschreiber, but didn't have the legs to go all the way. Um, I think... <sighs> I think it will have been a case of rust for Novak. I mean, he didn't play since the Australian Open final. That is quite a long gap. Um, you know, I don't think results like this are bad for him. I think they will force him to kind of turn up that intensity. It's a dangerous state of affairs where you start turning up to tournaments and believing you're just going to win them off the bat. Um, got a bit of a run in doubles with Fabio Fognini. Yeah, I was going to say that. I was surprised to see him playing doubles. I was surprised to see him playing with Fabio Fognini as well. <laughs> Jocanini. Is that normal? Does does I mean does he always play doubles at Indian Wells? Uh, he's played he's played a little bit more doubles than I remember in the last few years. I remember he was playing at Queens, for example, with mm. Vavrinka. I think it's just something he's doing. He played with his brother um, at the start of the year in Doha um, as well. I think it's something he says he doesn't get to do very often, but he does enjoy. Um, I don't think it's hurting him. I think he's volleying a lot better in singles because of it. He looks a lot more confident at the net, for example. He, he may even sort out his overheads. I think if... <laughs> Nervo off his overhead. What was it? Was it McEnroe who said he reckons he's got the worst overhead in the top 100? It was Becker. Becker, Which is particularly it. hard considering that was his coach as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, Boris will say anything. Um, I think with these guys, doubles, probably they do enjoy it because it's tennis without the hard bit. 
it's tennis without having to do the running around. You just have to serve and volley and hit the odd ground stroke. So I guess it is probably quite fun. You're in a team. We know how much tennis players love being in a team environment of the Labour Cup, and they very rarely get to do that. So I can understand it. I just wonder whether... Look, if Nadal was doing I think we'd all be asking a lot of questions. While Djokovic is fully fit, fine. Yeah, I think, you know, the other point is for Novak, um, because he'd not played that much, there was, I suppose, a little bit of a risk in the singles of what happening happened. And he, he does need to maintain some sort of court practice and sharpness. Mm. So, you know, you, you do only get that from matches. So I, I think the doubles served him pretty well. And uh, it should be probably worth mentioning he stepped in to save the day with an awesome foursome to replace uh, Nadal Federer you know him mm. Pete Sampras Tommy Haas and John McEnroe that's a pretty pretty good uh, pulled together exhibition yeah I mean I think you're still pretty gutted if you put paid $200 <laughs> for a ticket <laughs> yeah. uh, oh great get to see Pete Sampras wheel himself out yeah uh, and, and the other narrative I suppose people will try and uh, push forward for Djokovic was that uh, his kind of Wheeling and dealing in politics has finally got the better of him. Yes, um, um, I don't want to get bogged down in this, George, because it, it's quite complicated. But essentially, he's ousted Chris Commode. Is that is that the, the, the simple way of putting it? Well, I think that would... Who is the chief executive of the ATP or was? Yeah. So he, um, he's, he's played a big role. You know, he's close with Gimmelstob. Um, and, you know, they've kind of manoeuvred a way to get rid of the ATP president. Uh, the tournament council is really, really annoyed they're very, very angry. And what we've got now is, you know, obviously you need the player council and the tournament council to vote in this president. Uh, and the tournament council is basically saying, we're not going to vote in any of the players, uh, people they want to put up because there's we don't dead, trust them. There's sort of deadlock, basically. Yeah, so I think we could be in a kind of period where we're going to be at least a year without a chief executive, which isn't ideal because as soon as you've got an interim president there as well, nothing gets passed. Mm. So it could be a pretty long situation but and it's an important time for the ATP as well with all the endless different team cups that are coming in they need to be proactive in responding to that in managing their schedule around it to do that without a chief executive is going to be quite difficult yeah and they're trying to um, implement new kind of lower level challenger stuff mm. to kind of help cover this ITF nonsense that we've discussed before with yeah. their kind of new tour so it's not necessarily the best time to be losing a CEO and I think the big annoyance that those in the game have is that you know it seems like they've got rid of commode because they're annoyed at the structure of the atp as a whole which is basically you know you've got three representatives on the count the player council three representatives on the tournament council they're often locked three all and then the president votes on it right uh, but that's not necessarily chris commode's fault and he is someone who has kind of voted with the players a lot i just don't really understand what what they're thinking beyond, you know, Gimmelstob making this big kind of power play with this group of cronies he's got in the uh, player council. And of course, now he's facing assault charges. You know, if he gets convicted of assault, he's not going to be ATP president, mm. whether he should be anyway. I mean, he's got a pretty sketchy past, Gimmelstob. He's made some pretty horrific comments in the past. Um, and I think it's just, it's a pretty uncomfortable situation. I know he said we wouldn't get bogged down in this, and I will be brief, but, you know, he. It just doesn't sit right with me that Gimmelstob's one of three people essentially making this decision. You know, the the player council was split five and five, and yet all three player council representatives have voted to oust Commode. Mm. You know, the guys who are there are known to kind of vote with Gimmelstob, essentially. Um, Egdes is a, a good pal of Gimmelstob. They work together at the Tennis Channel. Uh, Inglot's quite young and inexperienced, so... You know, they're generally kind of following his lead. And I think that's a really uncomfortable look for tennis as a whole because you've got someone who's 
you know, a pretty sketchy character anyway, and he's facing these serious, serious charges, and he's just vote, had one of three votes essentially to get later. rid of the most important person in tennis. Well, something's <laughs> rotten in the state of Denmark, George. Thank you for summing that up quite so concisely. Fascinating, as always. You can read all more of this, all 5,000 words. That, and I'll give you some credit, George. You have done some very good reporting. Um, but if you do want to read it, head over to Metro.co.uk, of course, and check out everything George has to say. Uh, we should move on. The draw for Miami is out. Uh, I've just been glancing over it. Obviously, I, I had a detailed look at it last night, but I was just refreshing yes, my memory. Uh, it's a belter of a draw for Novak Djokovic. That seems to be the overwhelming uh, state of affairs. Federer is in the bottom half. Tsitsipas is in the bottom half. Marin Cilic is in the bottom half. And Alexander Zverev is in the bottom half as well. Djokovic, of course, is in the top half. Well, I think the the big problem for Djokovic is that if he is if he is lacking matches, he could very easily get caught cold in that first match Thomas Burdick or Bernard Tomic sitting there yeah or Bernard Tomic don't write them off they're no, both no, it's random enough to yeah. w- possibly win that um, yeah I mean that that's a pretty tricky tricky opener I, you know Djokovic will probably come up against guys who if they play perfectly could beat him like Ryanich you know if Ryanich serves perfectly that can cause anyone a problem mm. um, Isner's the defending champion he's in the same sort of section as well so yeah, there are some players. Kyrgios, I think, semi-final. Yeah, Kyrgios Nishia, in the same Nishia, final, But he's in the same section as Nishikori, who he can't beat to save his life. So oh, really? I, I suspect he, he won't that's come. A, that's a that. third-round clash as well, yeah, if, yeah. They, if they get that far. Federer Vavrinka third round again mm. as well. There's lots of really good early ties in this. Tennis Sandgren <laughs> as well. Remember him. He's played Nick Kyrgios in the second round. Oh. They've both got buys. It's not fixed, I promise. Um, uh, I think one person we haven't talked about very much lately is Grigor Dimitrov. Mm -hmm. And I kind of always end up coming back to him because, you know, we're always searching for, like, turnaround moments and and, and moments of coming of age. And he's a guy we thought had in the ATP (laughs) World Tour Finals and comprehensively hasn't. Yeah. What on earth is going on with Grigor Dimitrov at the moment? He, he incidentally has got either Lopez or Benoit Paire in the first round and could end up meeting Cam Norrie um, if he makes it that far. Yeah. So He could easily lose that first match. Yeah, ma- massively. I mean, there's just no form whatsoever. I know he's been struggling with injury as well, but are we, are we just going to give up on Grigor Dimitrov? He's working with um, Andre Agassi as well at the minute. I mm. mean... I don't know. I, I, it's so, I think it's very hard to completely give up on someone who will have a few years after the big four. I mean, don't don't underestimate what a weird landscape this is going to look like. I mean, we're, we're talking now about 19 different tour champions. I mean, this could happen at Grand Slam level quite easily, same as the, what's happening at the women's side. You know, yeah. it could take a while for guys like Zverev, who I expect to establish himself at the top, to actually do that on slam level. So, you know, don't be surprised that Dimitrov has proven he can win big titles um, to just randomly start going for it. But consistency's just never been there with him, has it? I mean, yeah. he, he has just big six-month spells where he wins a couple of titles. Um, the worry for me is that he keeps getting different injuries. You know, he's had this shoulder tendonitis. He had an ankle injury at the end of last year. He's had, I think, a back problem as well. When you get all those different things... That worries me because you can't treat it. You can't say, right, I'll have this op, take a year mm. off and then come back. It's different things and it's so hard to find form and, and to keep 
coming back and keep going through different types of rehab. Because when you have like a persistent shoulder injury, you know all the rehab, you know all the different things you have to do. Whereas when you have different things, you go to the physio and you're like, right, I've now got this back problem. What do I have to do to manage that? And you can't learn your body because it keeps changing. That's a worry for me. Yeah, and I think, you know, as is the case with all the one-handed backhand players, it it does take a kind of special type of um, external conditions to all kind of come together for it to work for you. You know, if that, that shot, is needs to be so precise and so perfect for Dimitrov to be winning tournaments and I think that's where the consistency struggles you know it's a it's a brilliant shot when it it's perfect but it is the shot people can get at when he's not dominating the court well enough and I think you know team has shown this week what what difference it makes when he's kind of on top of his backhand you know we're talking about a losing record compared to winning Indian Wells that's sort of the, the same sort of thing you see with Dimitrov and it that comes from match play that comes from a bit of confidence um bit of belief i mean i just don't see that coming for dimitrov anytime soon but that said given how random this year is it wouldn't surprise me if he just turned up and won at miami now i mean it 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 is that sort of random at the minute and people will get chances the the draw all of it you know i look at it i think okay federer and Djokovic could have really tricky matches at these points but what we're seeing is that it's just pretty random who's getting through at the moment. Anyone can beat anyone. There's a sense of, I don't know, a, a sense of there is a lot of depth or a lot of, you know, n- not that strong mentalities who are going to kind of turn up and win every week. I mean, team, mm. okay, it's hard, it is hard to win Indian Wells in Miami, but you could easily see team going out in the first round now. You yeah. know, that, that wouldn't be a big surprise because it is just just pretty random at the minute. Mm, absolutely. Yes, he's, he's taking on either Matteo Berrettini or Hubert Hurkacz, who I believe yeah, was nominated well. for Breakthrough Player of the Year last year. And he did very well. Um, lost to Federer Hurkacz, and he uh, had a couple of very, very impressive wins. I think mm. I saw people comparing him to Andy Murray in terms of <laughs> mannerisms and playing right. style. Yeah, no, honestly, because right. he, he has the kind of cap and does similar see, things, so he looks very much like him. All right, we're running out of time, but very quickly, um, let's have a little prediction for Miami. Um, men's and women. Men's and women's, yes. Uh, well, I think, I think. Look, if it's not Djokovic, because it's boring to predict the one and two seed. Okay, shall we say a prediction outside of those? Two? Yes, exactly. I, I'll have, I'll have Djokovic. You can have Federer. <laughs> okay, and right. Okay, and then we'll, we'll, take, we'll, take we'll, we'll take someone else. Someone else. Who are you thinking? Oh, I'm just trying to relive the draw of my brain. I think, um, I think, I like. A contender in the bottom half. I think they've got a good chance mm. in terms of Sissy Pass. Looks like he's got a pretty decent run to me. Mm-hmm. Um, do I think he's going to win the whole tournament? I don't know, but I'll go. I'll go for him because I, I think of everyone, he seems to have the best run. Him and Zverev. Zverev. Actually, Zverev. Let's go Zverev. Zverev's good at this level. I think Kevin Anderson has a hell of a straight draw. back from injury. And, no, <laughs> but he's got he's got a hell of a draw. Honestly, like, he's going to play like Halmi Munar. And then probably Steve Johnson, and then maybe Hatchinov, and that—that's a test. But that's the perfect warm-up. I know he's straight back from injury, but I just—I just sense it. I sense it in my bones, George. Wow. I mean, he's going to meet Federer in the semi-finals, and Federer is his bunny now, so he'll stroll past him. Won't be a problem. And in the women's draw, George, a little bit of a shot and dart because it's the women's tour, and it's so unpredictable. It's what's great about it at the moment. But if you had to pick one, and you can't have one of the top two seeds. Who even are the top two seeds? Osaka and uh, Osaka and Halep. It, it's Halep because mm. Kerber's just moved above 
up yeah, in the rankings, but before, but before the seeding yeah. system. Hence my confusion. I think uh, my uh, um, it is tough. Kvitova uh, has been in pretty good form all year. She's always going to be there or thereabouts. Um, I mean that is still a bit predictable and boring. I have to say. No, it's fine. You but can take Kvitova. I'll allow take it. Right. Okay. Um, I think. Just trying to work out. Sloane Stevens has got a draw that six months ago might have been quite tough, but defending champ, of course. Yeah, and actually, Mertens and Ostapenko play in the third round probably for the chance to play her in the fourth round, and that that might be a battle. Of You're not backing Ostapenko. You normally seem to go for her. Well, I do. <laughs> I just have a, a little bit. Uh, Ostapenko is my female Kevin Anderson, but I sort of think Elise Mertens. I thought she was going to have a breakthrough year. She just hasn't. Um, Ostapenko has hardly blown, set the world on fire. Um, I just see Stevens might have again the perfect amount of resistance to get into the tournament. I always think you want to play someone all right in the third round, but you don't want to play someone spectacular. So Sloane Stevens, number four seed, which is a bit boring. I apologise. That is all we've got time for. I'm sure we haven't even got time for that. But uh, it's been a pleasure having us. Make sure you follow us on Twitter, Love Tennis Pod, uh, and we'll be back after Miami. Podcast Network. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press one. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press two. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over a hundred social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today. At LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.